Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com The Unconventional Soldier a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for downloading the first episode of 2022. Last year was a great one for the podcast, and we reached a milestone of 40,000 downloads in December. So we'd like to take the opportunity to thank you all for listening and supporting the series. This year, we hope we'll continue to provide content that you'll find interesting, and with the following episodes planned and are working on others. Firstly, We've got one on one for eight battery. We've got one with John Tullock, who is a New Zealand Army veteran who fought in Vietnam, and he's going to discuss the FOO role in Vietnam. We're also going to later on have another podcast on John's book about the British Army in Borneo in World War Two. Next, we've got a podcast on Royal Navy clearance divers, one on private security companies, one on artificial intelligence and warfare and an episode with Rob Long, who is a blind veteran. who He was injured in Afghanistan, lost his sight in Afghanistan, and he's also a, a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu champion, a really inspiring story with Rob there as well. So today then, carry on, and we're going to talk about scoff in the Army, Scran if you're a Royal Marine, and obviously dining at the Ritz if you're in the RAF. So in this episode, we're going to cover nutrition, specifically developments and providing rations for soldiers and high-performance endurance events. So Emily's been a soldier knows that when you're deployed in ops, your existence boils down to doing your job, eating and sleeping. But the ration pack itself is a relatively new invention. And for many armies through the ages, they had to live off the land, forage or steal in order to survive. However, the aim throughout the centuries has been to put the most calories in the bellies of soldiers quickly, efficiently and for the least cost. If you ever had an army have a bag or dined at a Sodexo facility, you know that the least cost one's the main driver. So our guest today is Ali McDonald, co-founder and CEO of Resilient Nutrition. And Ali served in the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, the HAC and the London Scottish. So Ali, our first guest in 2022. It's great to have you on the pod. And we normally start off with our guest backstory. So over to you. 
Thanks, Cole. Thanks, Kev. Great to be on the on the pod. Um, as I said before, it's a great show. Some great guests. I feel very uh, privileged to be here. So, yeah, a bit of background. Um, I grew up in a military family. My my father joined the Scots Guards, right flank as a piper. Pretty rapidly got bored of um, of bullying stuff and decided he wanted to jump out of aeroplanes. And he ended up spending most of his career uh, with Number One Guards Independent Parachute Company. My personal military career started off in the Air Training Corps. Um, I like to think I'm tri-service. I've spent quite a bit of time in, in various different uh, organizations. But, uh, yeah, the Air Training Corps didn't get me any flying experience, but it did teach me how to do rubbish drill. And it probably was my, um, my, first, my, my first experience of, of rations, which uh, at the time were tinned, uh, tinned cheese and bacon, a.k.a. cheese possessed. Yeah, and then um, when I finished school, I went off to university, uh, studied at Newcastle, and I joined the uh, Officer Training Corps with uh, grand ambitions to go to Sandhurst. Yeah, I, I mainly did that because you got paid uh, which was great, you know, but get get paid to go out for weekends at Otterburn and come back to a bar that was 50p a pint. I pretty rapidly got through my NTQ examination, so I, I became a, a trained soldier. And by 1994, I went across to the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, 6 RRF, who were just down the road um, from us as, as a PO. The, the plan was to, to go to Sandhurst the following September. Uh, so I had a bit of time that I was uh, trying to fill. I, I tried to go and get a job with the university. That failed. But I, but I was doing some interviewing and um, for civvy jobs, this opportunity came up as a consultant. Uh, so I hot-footed it down to London. and was looking at options. Uh, the obvious one was to join the Fusiliers deta- Detachment in the in the London Reg, um, or I had some, some ambition to, to look at 2-1 SAS. The reason for that was a lot of my dad's buddies had gone on to G Squadron, and so I'd grown up with a kind of it surrounded by these sort of superheroes with with great stories from from Borneo and Aiden Oman. I had a pretty good pair of lungs and legs on me. I thought, okay, might as well give it a pop. Uh, but then someone said to me, look, it's re- you know, a it's hard to get in. It's even harder to stay in. Why don't you have a look at the HAC? And actually, at the time, my understanding of the HAC was probably Second World War. Yeah, it was it was that this it was this unit of. Uh, potential officers that they could send anywhere to do all sorts of stuff. But after I went to the briefing, um, I kind of got a better idea of what the unit was doing. It's only actually, interestingly, having listened to, to these pods, that I've actually realised that what I was going through was actually still pretty quite pretty new. And yeah, it, it, yeah the regiment was evolving, uh, which it's yeah, obviously continued to do over the years. So I, I ended up in recruit course, I think it's 42 or 49. I've got a photo somewhere. And uh, went through recruits. That was that was a great experience. I mean, it, as, as we've heard on uh, previous episodes, yeah, any reserve unit is is going to be an interesting group of people. Um, it, it tends to be a quite a different population in terms of they're there voluntarily. That they're, they're there. They've got a they've got a job. Um, they do outside of it. And we had the usual mix. We had guys working in the city. Uh, we had ex-regulars, we had reservists that were coming back for another pop. You know, recruits was great, and I, I won't go over you know the, the stuff that's been talked about in the past. But you know, recruits was you know I, I was in an era when you did six months of recruits and then you did six months of PSC, which was which was great. The whole thing was was just a great experience as a reservist. What did your dad think he joined the HAC? Did you give him some stick? Bear in mind his background. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, he was just glad I wasn't joining uh, joining the RAF. Uh, <laughs> So, 
So well, the RAF uh, listeners, obviously, <laughs> that's not me and Cole. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he. Uh, I got a little bit. No, he, that, Dad. To be fair, was um, he? He. Uh, he actually gave me that that view that it, it's not about the unit; it's about the spirit and the camaraderie. And actually, when when you're out there, doesn't yeah, cat badge doesn't really matter. It's uh, kind of just get on with the job but yeah anyway so i i actually ended up in the nascent um signal squadron kind of my my thing my my work thing was was data and technology so actually anything that involved tech i was quite interested in i did my patrol medics i did my patrol radio course i didn't i never got deployed i you know i was a proper yeah ta soldier yeah, I, I think the only op I could ever claim to have been involved in was Princess Diana's funeral, which which doesn't really count. So, but yeah, what, what, hold on, Ali, you can't can't get away with that. What what were you doing on Princess Diana's funeral? Were you picking up litter, or were you doing something <laughs> <very I'm>, more <laughs> important? We we we, we popped up some um, ops to to keep an eye on what people were doing. I think. Oh, uh, okay. The, the unit uh, you shot me down there, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh, they, well, as you know, the, the HAC can can find a way to get involved in anything, um, and yeah. it, if it's in London and it involves something uh, something big, uh, there'll be someone from the HAC. So yeah, and eventually work took over. I transferred. Uh, I probably didn't mention my dad was a piper. I'm, I'm technically a piper, um, and I ended up across at the London Scottish um, with pipe band there. Uh, but also kind of being the the, the token recce kind of guy, um, having spent most of my time in in recce or uh, that kind of surveillancey I starry type role, I, I, I did add some tactical value there, um, and I th- I thought that was it. I, I did get to play the pipes of the Queen Mother with the band, which was good, another, another little uh, uh, interesting one, um, and I thought that was it. That was uh, what mid mid twenty twenties. And then in 2018, I got a chance to go back and do Soldier A and, and B course. So I, I looked at going back at the very last knockings as a sort of 48-year-old, mainly because we were doing some work on human performance, and it fitted in quite well with the stuff that we were doing in my civilian job. And I just wanted to see what it was actually like. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of big on experience and yeah, building from real world experience. Um, sadly, I got I got, I got booted out because um, I had a, a medical technicality. But I did spend some really good times with back with the London Regiment um, with all of the new recruits. And I've got to say, I'm really impressed by the quality of recruits that are coming into the reserve forces now. What I what I came across was a bunch of mainly late teens, early twenties, some a little bit older really enthusiastic yeah and you've talked on previous shows about yeah reserve soldiers having another job these guys were absolutely committed and they were so i think the biggest thing i noticed was curiosity they were all committed and they were curious they wanted to learn they wanted to understand stuff we had a bunch of bunch of female recruits going through their cmt's course the combat medical technicians course and it was just great to see uh, so many young people giving it a try yeah. which was inspiring I think the days of like we joined up in the eighties and it was do what you're told, shut up, don't ask questions. There's absolutely no way you can continue that line of soldiering these days because people are a they're not scared of authority anymore, you know, and and b generally speaking they are better educated. I think in a lot of lot of circumstances. Also, I think the reserve forces have changed massively. The, the reserve forces of today compared to what they were like in the seventies and eighties is unrecognisable. 
They are yeah. Afghanistan as well. Yeah, was a yeah Iraq, point. Afghanistan, and Bosnia because they were deployed to Bosnia as well and other places. Total different organisation now to the the old TA as it was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that, that operational turnover and actually getting experience. And, uh, and I think the mindset from the regulars as well, the PSIs that are coming in, they've changed their mindset as well because there are say it. In the old days, some of the PSIs that would go to the TA or the permanent staff instructors from the regular army were not always going to be the best or the most motivated. Now they're going with tons of experience and they're trying to get that across and it makes a big difference. A lot of time back in uh, sort of the 90s and 80s, it was a guy in his last couple of years service that wanted to go back to his hometown. And as you say, Kev, not necessarily the best guy to be putting there as an advert for the regular army. And I suppose the converse of that was that, you know, the whole stab mentality, you know, you, you rocked up as a as a reservist or a TA soldier and you, you had to prove yourself so much more. Yeah, you know, as soon as you had contact with um with a regular unit. And one thing I did like that happened a, a lot more and had happened by the time I uh, came back in 2018 was direct connections with regular units. So London Scottish was paired with the Scots Guards who were just down the road in Knightsbridge. Yeah, and, and so that that kind of interconnection at both at the soldier level but also at the unit and training level um had changed which which, which is great you know just actually having that it, it didn't just happen on camp or on deployment it actually happened you know day to day it makes a big difference i think and it, it like i say the mindset's changed massively the reserve forces now are unrecognizable they're uh, have a lot more professional they they get the same kits they go through some of the same training they go on the same operations you know they hold their own now and sadly, they get to eat the same rations, which brings us nicely on to our main pod of the day. <laughs> so that's so when, you, Kev. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm saying off mute. <laughs> <laughs> when we joined up in the 80s, the, right. Russian, the Russian pack, as I remember it, were issued, came various sizes. You had the individual, the four-man, the ten-man, depending on what type of vehicle you're on or what type of uh, role you're in. It was primary tin foods with lots of chocolates in tins. Everything was in tins. And then we started to move towards the ball in the bags. But my, my memories of obviously the tin stuff was great because obviously when I went to the jungle, we all had tins because we didn't have ball in the bags at the time. In the 80s, I was fortunate enough, I was attached to the Gurkhas. So I had Gurkha rations, which were more ball in the bag, but obviously designed for uh, Gurkha soldiers. It took me a little bit of time to get used to a lot more rice and the way the meat was pulled together as well. Uh, when we went to the Arctic, obviously it's all dry rations because obviously you don't, you know, there's plenty of water, loads of boiling. I was talking to Colin about this. Obviously, MREs were always something that you you always got a hold of if you could because you used them as your emergency rations because you had the American cooker as well. I experienced quite a lot. And then the ball and the bags came in, which seemed like a real big luxury. But the one thing about all the rations are they give you this big box and you're still only going to take one bag, one packet of biscuits. You're not going to take <laughs> the whole thing. It's too big. So to get all those calories, you can't carry it. And that's a good point because you think about an Arctic ration pack, if you ate everything, gave you 6,000 calories round about. A normal ration pack is about 4,000 calories. But as you've just alluded to, you never took the whole lot. So you're probably maybe getting two and a half, three thousand 3,000 calories. So You're probably looking at a 24-hour ration box size, and that would be your rations for seven days. Because you'd, you'd try and pack everything into that. Because how much energy are we going to use to carry it? Where was you going to carry the fuel to cook it and keep it warm if you were allowed to cook and all the rest of it? It was it was a, a great concept, but for the dismounted soldier, 
I mean, absolute nightmare. I mean, and that's been probably the most consistent thing we've seen. You know, whenever you talk to anyone that's had rations is box get op- gets opened. There's, I think, 42, 43 items in a typical ration pack. 20, 30 of them get ditched. The other lot get traded and bartered for you know, other rations. Um, and then some, then it gets stuffed into you know, any, any pouch or pocket or flap that it, that it can be. That, 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 that's been it for, for years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think and I, and I mentioned it a little bit as well, was that I think what was even slower in the development side was, especially for the dismounted soldier, was how to cook this stuff. Because cookers, I mean, it was hexi-blocks, that was it. And it, no, nothing else was brought in quickly apart from in the Arctic. You got a peak stove, but all this stuff was um, it was slow, and that's why I mean when when we got MREs and when I was in Northern Ireland, the IUC hot cans, which I thought were brilliant, uh, they self cooked and all the rest of it. But yeah, my memories of the rations are everything was heavy and it never gave enough energy. Looking uh, Ali then about the history of rations from your perspective, then what can you tell us? Okay, a little, little potted history of, of rations. So um, the, the notion of a ration has been around since the Romans. You know, it, the, the Navy is probably the, the one we associate a lot with, as well as the Army. So you know, the Pusser's ration, you know, the rum ration. People always remember the rum ration. But, Which didn't go out to the 1970s, didn't it? It was still like, early 1970s, didn't it? Yeah. Late, and, later than that, we still had it in the jungle. Yeah, that's right. Because arduous training, arduous conditions – Doctor could still sign off. So in the jungle, we still got, uh, because we have to have fresh days as well as, if you're in the jungle for so long, you have to have what's called fresh days. So they have to have so much fresh food every, I think it was seven or 10 days. They're still it for the Arctic, Arctic warfare training yeah. as well. So, yeah, so, but, but yeah, in, in the old days, back, back in the day, uh, uh, the ration wasn't a box of food. It was, it, essentially, it was a, a statement of what the, what, the quartermaster was expected to to give give the troops or or the sailors. So essentially, it was it was a notional set of weights and measures of a set of products that would deliver the you know based on the best knowledge of the time the nutrition required you know, for the environment. So yeah, if we go back to eighteen oh five, this is before the arrival of the tin can. The average soldier's daily ration consisted of one and a half pounds of bread or flour, or one pound of ship's biscuits. One pound of beef or half fat of pork, a quarter pint of dried peas, sounds good, uh, one, ounce of, one ounce of cheese or butter, one ounce of rice, and and five pints of beer or one pint of wine or half a pint of spirits. That's half a pint of whiskey. So, yeah, it was uh, nutritionally interesting. And, and it, it really, that hadn't changed for 200 years. And essentially, you know, it, it it's pretty similar to what what the Romans you know were, were eating. The, the critical thing that changed was around eighteen twelve. Two guys called Duncan and Hall set up a uh, basically they they bought the patent for the preservation of food using a tinned iron canister. So it was the arrival of the tin can, and not only did that change the future of rations, but it also had obviously, as we all know, a profound effect on history. So if, if food could be preserved for longer, it effectively meant the soldier or the explorer could go for longer and further without support. Prior to canning, explorers adventured into the unknown for hundreds of years, loaded with barrels of salt beef, pork, and fish. And you know, the, the obvious side effect, you know, it was great at killing off the microbes and bacteria, but it meant that most of your food was salty. And so basically left you with some pretty unappealing food that was uh, essentially, it got you through, but it certainly wasn't enjoyable. 
And that was one of the reasons that, that, that soldiers and sailors got scurvy, wasn't it? The, the poor nutritional value in the, the, the food. That's right. And, and it's still, and, and why, why citrus fruit, you know, became a, a thing, a, a requirement. You know, you, you talked on it, talked about it. Kev was just, it's still a thing. You know, the, the goal from a nutrition perspective, we spent some time in the kitchens with the guys up at Bryce Norton who, who look after essentially all the rations that get shipped out to anywhere that we're on operations. And the goal is within seven days to get guys onto local rations. And, and the reality is, and, and I, I'm sure both of you will know this, is you end up with hybrid situations. You know, when, when you've got to a critical mass in a, in a fob or somewhere where you can get stuff locally, and it, you know, some great stories from deployments about getting a goat. And yeah, I, th- I think there was a number for the cost of a goat in Afghanistan. The, the cost of buying it you know, was, was $50. The, the cost to the MOD was 1500 There was some, yeah, it, because of all the bits and pieces that had to happen. But I think, yeah, the reality has always been a combination of what, what you're given uh, from the quartermaster and what you can, can get from your surrounding environment. But yeah, so back to Bermondsey, 1813, Duncan Hall, they set up a, a canning factory in Bermondsey and they started producing canned food for the British Army. Uh, and that really was where the ration pack started and because as, you know, tin cans were the, the core of the ration pack for probably from then through to post-Second World War. They were always there. In fact, probably, you know, 70s. Uh, and they, they're still in the 10-man ration pack with, with a few fewer uh, adjustments. Going to the Boer War, First World War, we started to see tins and packets appearing in soldiers' rations with the addition of uh, the all-important tea. And from a performance perspective, this comes back in history, it's caffeine. And that notion of uh, familiarity is something we've, we've seen all the way through rations. And it's something that we see now is, is, is you've got to produce products that the average soldier is familiar with, which is why things like corned beef has survived through being in tins and in and in boiling the bag. Yeah, it, it's a familiar, yeah, it's why curry comes back. So it, 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 there's definitely a thing about familiarity. I also think, Ali, when you start eating another nation's rations, initially the concept's quite good because it's a little bit different, but I've always found that I always gravitated back to our ration packs, using MREs as an example, to me, they were just like kiddie food snacks. Novelty. And they were a novelty, and it wore off quite quickly, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. vacuum packed pizza only goes for so long. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so then we start. You know, then we started to get get into. There was a company called McConaughey uh, of Aberdeen who came up with the M and V ration, even though a lot of the product wasn't actually made by them. And the idea of that was that the contents could be eaten hot or cold. Uh, so that started to get us towards this idea of of a meal in a tin or a meal in a bag. So what else? What 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 else started to come in uh, Second World War? We started to see things like biscuits, chocolate, what what and that's sometimes called the ancillaries or the, or the sundries. So uh, matches, loo paper started to get things like uh, boiled sweets uh, in addition to tea. So actually, yeah, what's interesting about that is we're starting to get a little bit of diversity in terms of nutrition. So yeah, a boiled sweet is is pretty much straight carbohydrate, which is actually quite useful when you're you're having to hoof it. Higher levels of intensity tend to require carbohydrates. So we, I wouldn't say we were getting very scientific about it, but we were uh, certainly uh, getting more diversity. Um, I think as well in the Second World War, didn't they issue cigarettes and ration packs as well? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, very healthy. <laughs> so yeah, post-war. So I, I think yeah, as as this podcast has uh, you know, heard 
quite a few times. We, we, we were very familiar with West Germany and, and the German cuisine. That was also the same time, so the 80s, when we started to get the menu system. Yeah, we all talk about menu A through G. Any, any comments on favourite menu? God, I can't remember. I think menu A rings a bell for, to yeah. me for some reason. Worried chicken was always a favourite. But chicken in brown sauce was horrible. Oh, mate. Yeah. yeah. Which was Bacon uh, grill. Some, yeah, bacon, bacon grill. grill. And you can still get bacon grill in Sainsbury's, and I love it. I know, but yeah. I, I, it, it was a – I don't know what it was. Eating that cold <laughs> was horrible because there was lumps of fat all over it. Because when you open the tin up, the fat hasn't been cooked – and you were just slicing it and thinking, this is not going to taste nice. But if you could lay your hands on a nice bit of thick sliced white bread and <laughs> yeah. oh, just jam some jam some sort of... Uh, cheese, yeah, possessed, cheese possessed in strawberry jam, maybe? I used to like that. Yeah. I, th- I yeah. think the test, of, the test of any menu was, could you eat it cold? <laughs> True. Because that was the tester. If you couldn't eat it cold, it was horrible. And that, and that I think dictated to what menus you preferred not the menus you got because the quartermaster would just give you whatever he had in the store <laughs> that's it okay so we're mo- moving on mid 90s boil in the bag arrived and that was was enabled by a thing called the retort pouch so essentially what we were able to do is laminate an aluminium foil with three different kinds of plastic in a malleable pack which meant that you could, yeah, and the beauty of, of, of the retort pouch, which still survives now, is that you could you could heat it up. It would st- it could withstand heat. So you could stick it in your metal mug, stick it on top of the hexi cooker, boil it up, uh, warm up the contents. Yeah, that that was transformation. And Kev, to your point, yeah, you could eat them hot or cold, and actually they didn't taste too bad. That that was a big step step forward. Everything's evolved over time around the best thinking. Yeah, we start to get onto. By the 80s, we were starting to see things like energy bars. And I think I'll talk about this a bit later on, but there's always been an interact, a relationship between kind of the commercial world and the military. And yeah, the military always think, what can we learn from, from business? And business always think, well, yeah, what can we learn from the military? And it's actually things like dextrose tablets. You know, remember, the, remember the, yeah. the dextrose tablets that cropped up for a wee while? Yeah, they, they, they were designed because someone recognized that you know, we, we needed more glucose in that mix and actually those kind of tablets could be absorbed better um, they were probably better than a, than a boiled sweet same goes for energy bars in general but, but going back to what you're saying there ali about soldier i didn't know md ate those dextrose tablets they were they were binned every time yeah nine times out of ten you'd never carry them my what? brother was a diabetic and dextrose tablets all diabetics carried them well they also they did didn't they um they fell apart they just as soon as they got wet that that was yeah. the issue with them yeah you, you uh, put them in it, your pocket it, by the time you got got two days into a and exercise, they would mush. You had to you had to choose carefully what you were willing to take, and you were trying to find something that was going to be tasty towards the end, hot or cold. It was going to survive sitting in your pack and getting bashed around, survive a river crossing, survive the rain, everything else. Yeah, and Dexter's tablets weren't doing it. No, <laughs> no, can't swim. But uh, do you know what? I, I think probably the biggest thing is everyone had their system, and I think that's that is still true. Everyone would have a unique kind of set of things they'd rip out, uh, things where they'd put them, yeah. and and that that was part of the art of of feeding in the field. It still is, you know. It's kind of like you've got the stuff you like, where you how you, what you do with it, when you use it, yeah. You know, what what gives you the morale boost over you know your guy, the guy next to you? Yeah, but I think what was also important though is we used to supplement rations. When I was in the jungle, we had multivit tablets. Uh, we took in tins of tins of fish. 
and tuna just just to break up the rations, but also to get some more goodness in that we weren't getting from the ration packs. And, I, and I, we did it on every exercise. And on operations, you do exactly the same. You try and supplement it with what you think you might need. I it, and it's interesting. You know, tin fish, tin fish is great. You know, we we you know, we've done so many plans for guys, you know, rowing the Atlantic or you know, going on expeditions. Tin fish is a great get out of jail. Fresh food for the first ten days, and and soldier supplement. We see a lot of guys ordering in stuff to just get enough calories. And jungle's a really good one because the tradition in the jungle is you come out probably six kilos lighter than you went in. Hip and thigh diet, as it's called. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, yeah, it comes to the modern day. Whilst most of the the military are spending money on AI tech, you know, hardware, we we like to you know protect that final bastion of of the meat in the middle. So our job really is to try and make sure that we keep that guy on the ground, a guy or girl on the ground in the air, on the water, as well fed and in the game as possible. You know, it's even more complicated these days because back in our day it was take it or leave it, but nowadays you've got to cater for soldiers' tastes, and they might be vegetarian, they might need halal. You know, there's whole different menu sets there as well. And the army's actually getting quite good at taking into the individual religious and other dietary needs too. It is. But that causes a logistical issue as well, especially when you're moving food from the UK onto operations, especially austere operations, where you've only got limited space on an aircraft or whatever. Instead of the old days where you just threw menu G and loads of it and everyone would just eat the same stuff, adding those other commutations can add a complication for him as well you made a great grumpy quartermaster wouldn't you kev (laughs) all i remember was when i used to go down to the quartermaster store and ask him for rations he would look at what he's got available and no matter what i asked him for that's what i was going to (laughs) get and i'd be like going but i need something to break it up you know seven days on the same menu he's miserable and he just smile and start to still get the same stuff. So, Ali, having been in the forces and uh, having that experience there, what inspired you to set up Resilient Nutrition? A lot of people ask me that, and yeah, you know, I've got a bit. I've had a bit of a hybrid career. If you asked me 15 years ago, I, I didn't know the difference between a carbohydrate and a protein. Barely. I, I got more interested in it over time because I'd always been an endurance guy. Yeah, cross country running at school, and I'd you know, done done the HAC course. With a lot of running around with, uh, yeah, with weight on your back. I was always just always doing long distance stuff. Always fascinated by this notion of physical and mental resilience. Yeah, what what was it that kept people in the game? And I I remember being inspired by that James Elroy Flecker poem about the uh, about the pilgrims, and just this almost this curiosity about that place in the distance that you could you could travel to you know through adversity and it's always associated with 2-2 SAS as well isn't it that we are the pilgrim's master yeah and it, it is it it's it's written on is it not written on the clock on the on the base of the clock at Hereford or something it, I, yeah it, it's definitely associated with, with the regiment and and I suppose home for me well, I know you can, can't tell it from the accent but family home is up on the west coast of Scotland so dad grew up in um in a place called Roybridge, which is just down the road from Achnacarry. Uh, Achnacarry is the home, you know, the spiritual home of the commandos. Um, and and there's still, you, you'll still see it. Lots of people go up there and do the, the 10 miler uh, up in Loch Abba. And yeah, he used to tell me stories about as a kid, how he would uh, trade eggs and milk and, and stuff from the farm with the commandos in return for a for a cabbie on on their kit and a and a few shots on the on the Bren gun and uh, and so yeah, having spent a lot of time up there, I just had this 
passion for being out in the hills and seeing how far you could go. And so, yeah, as, as a result of that, I kind of started to think more and more about how do you feed yourself in the field and yeah, not in the field, but on those kind of high, you know, the, those endurance events. Yeah. I was always comfortable surviving, you know, in, in, in nature, but at the same time, I knew that what if we could get this kind of hybrid, how could we get the best out of nature and the stuff that was available to us? What were those minimum injects that would really change the game? And then mid to mid 20, 2013, uh, by then I'd set up a company called Optimal Human Performance. So we'd started to look at not, we weren't looking at nutrition specifically. We were looking more at kind of what are these, what are the kind of pillars of resilience? And yet everything from kind of having a solid purpose and mission and to mindset, but also things like nutrition, exercise, sleep, and, and environment. And out of that, we started to do some more scientific research on how could you measure resilience and how could you measure what does the body tell us about how fast someone is pushing themselves and how far could we potentially take them? So we looked at things like HRV, heart rate variability, and, and essentially that's the that's the variability in the peaks and troughs of your heart rate. And so a, a high heart rate variability means that your heart is responding very fluidly to the pressure that you're under. And it's a really good indicator of stress. It's not a very good indicator of acute stress. It's a very good indicator of kind of longer cycle stress. We also started looking at things like um, NASA developed a thing called the Task Load Index, which enables you to measure psychological stress. And we did more and more research into really the, the things that you could measure. We started getting into looking at things like ambient measurement. Um, so what are the devices so wearables were kind of getting quite popular we started to look at what wearables you could use so people have talked about have you seen the aura rings people wearing rings that measure yeah. rate. look at sleep quality it's interesting sorry i could just jump in it's interesting you should bring all this up because i did 22 in the army and when i left i joined a civvy gym because in the army you're very fortunate you got a gym in your back door but also i was sort of conditioned to train in a certain way and then I went to the civvy gym one day and I was thrashing myself in the gym. Bear in mind, I'm in my early 40s at this point. And the, one of the instructors came up to me and said, can I ask you what you're doing? I've seen, I've seen you come in here a few times. What are you trying to achieve? And I'm like that going, well, I just want to thrash myself. And he goes, he goes, but what are you trying to do? And he actually, for the first time in my life, set me up with a proper training program, how to use a heart rate monitor, how to train intelligently. And the gains I made my fitness over a couple of months – on this training program, which I poo-pooed at first, yeah. oh, it was was huge. Yeah, exactly. And it just it takes it takes someone to tell you. Yeah, otherwise you believe what you've been taught. Yeah, and, and it's spot on. It, funnily enough, we, we we we've done quite a bit of work on that whole notion of when I went back to the Londons, the 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 work we were doing on, on the civvy side was around designing a training program for recruits. And yeah, when you look at it, it's about education. The big lever is how do we change perception at the at the soldier level about what nutrition actually is and what training you need to do to achieve the goal. And it, you know, if you look at some of the leading leading edge programs now, they're all about adapting nutrition, sleep, exercise for the training goal in mind. So, you know, if you're training for, you know, a hot, arduous deployment, then you know, you're going to be better at it. And that's going to be a different training protocol um, and nutrition protocol than yeah, if you're going to train for door kicking, where you, you know, you're going to need much more strength, and and that ties into that PTI's question, the Sevy PTI's question to me: What was I training for? Yeah, you know, yeah. And I told him I wanted, you know, I've laid out a set of conditions, and he just adapted me a training program to that. So that fits entirely with what you're saying there. Yeah, yeah, spot on. 
Yeah, so, I mean, by, when was it? Probably by 2017, 2018, we developed a uh, looking at different interventions, both physical and um, nutritional interventions. Yeah, ultimately, what we were trying to develop was this thing called ILOR, Intelligent Load Optimization and Recovery Engine, which was really where all of my experience kind of came together. You know, a, a techie uh, who had an interest in data with a bit of a military leaning and an interest in physical, cognitive, performance type training. And what ILOR did was essentially enabled us to, uh, we built a proof of concept that enabled us to measure the load that an individual was experiencing, both physical and cognitive load, and start to predict what the failure point would be. And what we learned from that was that actually everyone is unique and you end up having to have a model for everyone. What it boiled, what it boiled down to was, yeah, the more data we could collect on each individual on training, um, the more we could dial in all of these protocols. So getting much more towards this notion of personalized training, personalized nutrition, that led us to do some work that looked at specifically nutrition. So essentially we had two paths and we started specifically to look at, you know, the brief was to look at nutritional interventions that would um, help sustain performance in the face of sleep loss and fatigue. And I very luckily got to work with my co-founder at Resident Nutrition, a guy called Dr. Greg Potter, um, whose PhD was in um, a thing called chrononutrition, which essentially is the relationship between time and, and what you eat. Uh, we'd got to work together uh, on, a, on a few things before that. Uh, Greg had previously done some work with the US Marine Corps, specifically on sleep and recovery. And yeah, I, I'll, say to, yeah I'll say to anyone, if you're doing an endurance event, sleep is probably the biggest factor sleep and hydration yeah put bluntly you've got any even a skinny person's got enough fat on them to get around most courses at a moderate tempo the stuff that makes a difference is sleep and hydration so i'll just jump in what sort of what, what's the sort of the, the, the longest distance where without nutrition your body will just collapse it just it depends on the individual it, it's not, I, you know i've seen people go out to two three days you know without you know w- and still being able to sustain performance in if you have hydration. You know, mm-hmm. It's almost like hydration first. If you can then keep, you know, uh, Kev, you mentioned this, multivits, vitamin and min- mineral supplementation will keep you in the game. Then you start, you know, what happens to your body is without eating anything, within, depends if you've, you know, you've trained for this, within 24 to 48 hours, you start to generate a thing called ketones. Um, and the body can use ketones as a fuel source. And so interesting, a lot of guys doing training for endurance events, so a lot of guys going on selection now, will, will periodize their training to create this adaptation to better use ketones as fuel. And you can smell that on people, can't you? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sort of uh, funny breath, kind of sweating out uh, ketones. But yeah, and, and that, that actually is probably one of, the, one of the things that's really interesting about the human body. You know, we... Yeah, we're we're Stone Age bodies in a in a space age world, and you know our, our bodies. If you look at how each of us uh, perform and our bodies work, not a huge amount of it is down to what we you know are what we've done in our lifetime. Most of the way that your body responds to food and nutrition is determined by thousands of years of genetics. The next thing that influences is probably the last two generations. So what your parents ate that that has an effect. And then it's only a small percentage is affected by what you eat in your lifetime. So, you know, people do get allergies sometimes. 
they have, people do sometimes have you know, start to get responses to certain things. You know, we'll all know, you've all got friends in their forties and fifties who've started to not respond well to wheat or alcohol or, but the bulk of how you, you know, how your body actually fuels itself is, you know, thousands of years of, you know, history. So yeah, we then get into the, the crazy world of drugs. Unsurprisingly, the guys that first looked at, actually, no, you could, you can argue the, the Greeks were the first people to look at how we might use um, drugs or supplements to uh, improve performance. And Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Um, there's a really good book uh, called Stealing Fire that talks about some of the early hallucinogens that were used by the Greeks and the, and the Romans to, to fuel... Uh, warriors into battle but the the one that really cracks it is the nazis and you know the second world war really was when we started to see you know wide-scale use of drugs and you know chemicals to improve performance uh, and the big one in there was 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 amphetamines uh crystal meth that, that the nazis used exceptionally well in their initial traverse across europe in in 1940 so bomber command used amphetamines as well didn't they uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, but both sides used it. Yeah, yeah. yeah we always think it was just uh, just the, the other side, but but yeah, we were pretty good at uh, using those kinds of things. And and yeah, they have they're still used. They have been used. Yeah, up until you know things like the Gulf War. Yeah, and and you could argue that they're still in use. So if I look at kind of modern day times, the kinds of things that people have been modafinil is talked about. Modafinil is a prescription drug that that's that was developed for for narcolepsy so i don't know if you know what narcolepsy is but narcolepsy is the condition that um people will uh spontaneously fall asleep uh modafinil was developed for that um and together with caffeine it's probably the most prevalent kind of drug or supplement that's used to offset you know sleep and fatigue so you know that that brings us up, up to now yeah so we did a bun- bunch of work looking at how to optimize um nutrition using all levers um and then in 2019 we got to work with uh, two guys max and dave rather fortuitously i, I ma- met max at an event he said i'm rowing the atlantic and we want to break the record can you help <laughs> so so uh, we essentially put all of this knowledge and experience together and designed a system for them and having initially thought they'd take 50 days they ended up taking 37 days seven sorry 35 days 34 seven hours 54 minutes anyway they knocked 15 days off the record or what they thought they were going to take and that was really where resilient started yeah we went from being kind of quite scientific researchy kind of 
consultants to actually making real product. And that's really been where we've focused since then is looking at typically quite extreme events and looking at how do we keep those guys in the game as long as possible and as effective as possible. And did you cater what you, the nutrition system you provided for those two guys that rode the North Atlantic, did you provide it bespoke for them based on investigations into their body types that you, you referenced earlier? Yeah, and, and that, that, that tends to be the, the, the protocol. So any, any, anyone, yeah, you, you'll always want to get as much information about the individual as possible, Base, baselining their profile, understanding age, yeah, age, height, weight are all big factors, gender's a factor, allergies, preferences, they're all kind of like fundamental things. Then once you've got an idea of the profile, you can go as far as to doing things like you know blood panel tests to understand things like iron deficiency. Interesting is a really big issue amongst endurance athletes uh, so so blood panel data is really quite useful and then once you've got that you can then go right what's the challenge in hand what are we looking at and often you know we've been working with teams that uh we've got one team that we're working with that aren't doing their event until next year and we've been speaking to them for two years and that yeah they're, they're constantly dialing in their system working working down at the individual level what works best for them um so that personalization is makes a difference but it's the old um brailsford thing only some people can go to that one percent or that point percent yeah. yeah there's a lot of big levers you can pull you know even basic levers so we talked about the advancements to date how do you see the future then for military rations so i i, I think i've touched on a little bit of this already i think one of the biggest ones is going to be around personalization and the battle is going to be between the quartermaster and the human performance guys. We've seen a massive growth in the you know, human performance leads. Two, two or three years ago, that was a, a tier one SF type capability where human performance that was looking beyond standard training yeah. uh, became a thing. That's now come down to tier two. It's starting to find its way into kind of regular units. Um, and I think all of that is very much centered on personalization understanding the individual, understanding their profile, prescribing protocols that work for them. And the protocols are almost inevitably going to be physical training protocols, nutrition protocols, sleep and recovery protocols. And Colin, to your point, it's it's based on this notion of mesocycles. Yeah, four to six week cycles where people are going through iterations of, of a system that are either preparing them for training or deployment or helping them recover from from something. Um, do you, see, do you mentioned wearables earlier on, Ali, and, and what you're talking about there. Do you see the day when a soldier will have a wearable, how his, perform, his performance will be monitored at the unit level? And if he's running low on iron, for example, or he's got a vitamin deficiency, that will be picked up by that wearable? And do you see it going down as far as that, or do you think that's just still in the realms of science fiction? It's already in trials. Right. <laughs> we're, we're already doing it. You know, I've I, I got to credit where it's due you, the the advancements in you know, the use of technology and joining the dots on data are already there so you know we know that things like the aura ring has been used down at um army training regiment looking at kind of recruit sleep quality it, it's it's already happening and, and like yeah like a lot of innovations they almost appear without you noticing it, it yeah, doesn't yeah. doesn't appear with a fanfare it just starts to permeate <clears throat> I mean, I mean, they were looking at obviously on the medical side or on the 
with the future soldier, they were looking at, you know, equipping the soldier with a whole range of systems so he could be monitored, including the heat the heat index as well for him as well because of body armour. Yeah. Because that obviously a detrimental effect. The challenge is going to be in enduring operations in, in harsh environments where it's difficult to get all the elements out to, to the frontline troops is how you can you may be able to identify the deficiencies, but you may just have to live with that as you do now because you just can't personalise everything and get every single thing out to them. Yeah, and I, I, that's always going to be the case. You know, when you get to, you know, once you start taking away the, once you add more and more constraints, you just have to accept more and more run-of-the-mill run of stuff. You know, you just have, you get to that point. So, but uh, yeah, things like personalization, particularly for things like environment and climate, so we're all we, yeah we're already doing things around specific uh, vitamin mineral supplement packs for, yeah. al- for altitude yeah how the body behaves at altitude so yeah altitude we tend to burn more carbohydrate we we tend to need more iron because that the the body's working harder to store oxygen and transfer oxygen around the body yet you get a performance advantages with things like nitrates nitrates um, do a thing called vasodilation. So they just, but you know, you'll notice it when you, you know, when your veins go a little bit, you see them more visible on 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 your skin. That's vasodilation. That enables you to deliver more oxygen to the muscles um, and to cells. So there's things you can do with quite small products. Yeah, and I think that that's something that we can leverage. And yeah, just give you an example. We worked with a guy called Chris Gaskin who did the Wainwrights. He Wainwrights peaks. I think it was. 214 peaks and he did it unsupported so he took everything with him and he did that on about 450 500 grams of food a day one part of that was vitamins and minerals the other part was uh, some some nut butter uh, one was a dehydrated meal and the last bit was a protein cookie yeah, but but he, he grizzed it so so outside that personalization what other areas do you see changing then ali um so i talked about environment adapting for environment i think the the, the big one particularly in the MOD at the moment, is sustainability. With all these things, you've got to look at them in slightly tangentially. Yeah, you, you kind of need to have your lateral thinking hat on because yeah, it, it's not sustainability in a rations, MOD, supply chain environment. It, it is not about putting stuff in the recycling bin. Yeah, you start to get into things like refillables. You definitely get into, and one thing that we've focused on is energy required to move stuff around. Mm. If you make product lighter, you can either get more bullets on the on the helicopter, or you can get more bullets on the on the guy. And and you, know, you don't have any, as many Hercules flying out from Bryce to get the stuff there. You know, so so weight and energy is really important from a sustainability perspective. Big focus on reducing the weight the weight of these things. So to give you a sense, current ration pack weighs about 1.9 kilos. Yeah, as I say, we we can de- we've designed and worked on systems you know that combine what's in here with some other lighter, smarter stuff, and you can get down to 800, 850 grams. Yeah, you, you're saving and weight then. Yeah, you've ripped a kilo out of it, and I know. Yeah, I know we talked about you know a lot of guys ditching stuff from the packs. Yeah, but even then, you're still taking five, six hundred grams out a day. And you're delivering something that's more nutritionally valid to the job in hand. The the other one I'd say that that is going to be a challenge, but is important, is education. That's been a big focus. So, yeah, I've got, I've got an example here. Um, one of the things that we've been working on is how do you better educate 
the, the soldier on what to use when. If you talk to a sports nutritionist or, or, or a PTI now, yeah, they would talk about fueling for the work in hand. Rather than saying you need to get 6,000 calories on board, it's actually what tempo am I working at the moment? And so how do we educate a soldier that, okay, if I think I'm going to be you know, breathing out my uh, rear end for, for an hour running up a hill, I'm probably better off with a, you know, with a couple of gels or a carbohydrate drink than I am stuffing a Mars bar down because I'm actually mm. going to get what I, A, I need more carbohydrate and B, I need to get it on quickly and fluids are the quickest way to do that. So it's educating people on what to eat when for the effect they want. And you know, one of the big ones in there is night ops. You know, the, the, the military runs on caffeine, but the education around when to use caffeine and, and how to use other things to stay awake and alert is pretty poor so i think there's the, always a payback isn't there when you use caffeine there's always a come down so is that what you're talking about there is getting that that cycle of caffeine use correct so that yeah yeah uh, caffeine is brilliant but being a bit smarter about when to use it is is the mm. key so yeah, if you know you're going to be up all night on a, on a night you know on a on a night exercise or, or up, use caffeine at night but remember you might struggle to sleep when you get back to back to base and, and there are other ways that you can look at to just improve your sharpness at, at you know at night so i think yeah education and, and how do you get that across and there's two sides to that there's educating the soldier there's also educating the system not surprisingly yeah you know, when you talk to a quartermaster or anyone involved in in actually delivering this stuff there's a lot of resistance because on the face of it you're making it more complicated personalizing rations sounds complicated changing you're having individual packs yeah imagine yeah menu a through g but then with adaptations for um arctic for jungle for you start to get to quite a few different combinations the, the good news is that actually technology is there to help us there so it's very easy for a soldier to put their personal profile into an app it's very easy for a for an automated system to spit out what's required for that guy for 10 days in this environment that yeah that that that's the other bit is technology i think is going to find its way into how we deliver rations in the field we talked about hydration earlier obviously the old rations you need you have so much of a tin or uh, a ball in the bag and then you need so much water to help break that down to keep you know to keep the system working what's the impact on water do we need more water or is it just the same yeah, so yeah, you look at something like this. The, you know, this is the standard sort of stuff you get. You get, um, yeah, dehydrated meals are a big advantage because of weight. They do require water. Uh, they aren't half bad if you put cold water in. They're obviously a lot better if you put hot water in. The direction of travel is H two O first. I mean, I think technically, somewhere in some standing orders, you're not supposed to put electrolytes or kind of effervescent tablets into water bladders. Uh, I know a lot of people do that. Directionally, we're looking at secure, just straight H2O water supply is yep. the first thing. We're looking at then improving heating mechanisms. So probably the, the biggest innovation there has been things like dragon fuel, which is now standard issue. Um, is that, that that little gel thing, is it, uh, Ali? Yeah, that's right. What, what What's good about it is non-poisonous very easy to light with a flint and uh you know with a you know it doesn't need much to light it 
when it when it burns, the whole thing shrivels down to virtually nothing, um, and it also biodegrades. It's also got a re- really good thermic properties. So for not a very big block, you can heat up quite a significant amount of water. So clearly, if, you, if you're on hard routine, you're not going to be cooking anything. Yeah, use a naked flame. That seems to be the direction of travel. Uh, and it doesn't have that hexy stinker take it or leave the, the mess on your mug or your mess tins that Hex used to leave. No, it doesn't. It's a nice clean burn. It's based on ethanol. So uh, no, it's that's a, that's a nice clean clean burn. Yeah, and the, the, the other one is just energy density. Um, I think there's a lot more thought going into how what goes into the items in a ration pack mm. so you want it to be each evolution uh is gonna move things forward and you want the format to be familiar what we're playing with now is how can we get more of the right kinds of calories you know better match of protein carbohydrate and fat to the job in hand in a familiar format yeah it's it's how do we make bars better you know in in, in the latest iteration of the rations yeah, we've got we've got nut butters. They're going into the rations, and yeah, there's there's the leading edge, and there's what actually gets into into procurement systems. Those, yeah, those those are some of the key key things happening. I'm getting the impression from what you're saying here that you do have buy-in. The army is buying into this, and this is is this off the concept stage? Is it starting to feed into the field army? Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, as usual, starting with the kind of tier one guys, they're they're really kind of pushing the envelope in terms of right here's here's a situation that i need to solve for what what can you do uh, I've, I've got to say one of the big areas what yeah future commando force are really pushing the envelope and what they're doing yeah ahead of the game um so hats off to the royal marines for for, for what they're doing in terms of testing and learning and, before and- we get on to that, Al, I just want to ask you a quick question. When I'm talking to you before, you mentioned that the likes of Hereford has a human performance wing. Yeah. Could you just explain to me what, what they're looking into? There's there's probably two dimensions to this. As as you probably know, a couple of guys, uh, well, several people um, died on selection a few years ago. Um, and that really put kind of a warning sign in the system. You know, wh- why, why was that possible? I think that the net result of that was a bigger focus on the human being in the middle and understanding, you know, what is it that uh, you know, caused that? There's a big inquiry, but I think it also triggered a thought that actually, what could we be doing better about about fueling these individuals? Because it, it was pretty obvious that there was a mindset thing that would get people through courses and stay stay in units like that. But actually, what could we be doing that could help them perform at their best? And I think also there was a recognition that, you know, if you look at some of those courses now, it's no longer just grizzing it out. Yeah, if you look at someone going off and doing, doing the hills, they've actually built recovery time into it. And, yeah, and the old and bold will go, well, it's not, it's not the same. It's not as hard as it used to be. It's, it, but actually, I think it's just a recognition that you've got to give people the right environment to perform at their best you know nutrition adaptive physical training uh, sleep and recovery is, is on the agenda now and, and i think what you know, what you're finding is the kind of coaches that maybe work with professional sports teams are now doing that kind of work with the military and, and, the, and the, the guys in the u.s have, are ahead of us uh, as usual on that so you, you, you train athletes instead of as it was in the old days just train loads of soldiers that's it. That's exactly. It's more scientific. It's it's more thought through. Instead of the old days, which was put your shorts on, rough for a run, 
and off we go at the pace of the bloke in charge. Yeah, that, that, that's it. I mean, and I think that I think hopefully people will have seen this: the level and quality of training across the across the military and yeah, in the army. Of, yeah, you just see it that, that there's a recognition that. But there's also a pragmatism there, Ali, in that you have a limited pool of people coming forward these days. So you can't afford just – it's not like the 1980s when I joined up and there's 3 million unemployed. There's a limited pool of people coming forward, so you, you've got to look after them in some respects as well, I think. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's true. Um, and, yeah, with numbers dwindling, you know, what, what, what is it that adds value? And, you know, actually a lot of these young, young recruits that are coming in, yeah, phys- physical capability is important to them. You, you, you know, they, they, they care about they don't just care about how they look but they also actually care about performing well yeah and this is in you know run-of-the-mill units so you're starting to see much more uh focus you know focus on technology focus on kind of science and, and we see that coming in from from across the military that's cool. can you just cover a little bit more on future commando force alex oh, that's quite interesting what you said about that yeah so when we were working on ilaw we were kind of explaining kind of some of this thinking, some of the stuff we talked about. Um, we then got hooked up with Future Commando Force. And for those that aren't aware, essentially this is really an experimental force um, that uh, the Marines built around one of the commando units and uh, really was about testing new technology, new capability. What was good about it was it looked at both the, the technology, so lots of work on drones and autonomous and yeah, they they got issued with all the latest cry kit, and you know they got the C eight weapon system. Yeah, they got a bunch of stuff to try, and one of those things was looking at nutrition. So we spent probably a big chunk of the last couple of years working with them, looking at different adaptations to the existing nutrition system, but also things yeah, not just the nutritional part, but also the usability and the functional part. An interesting element to that is the, the notion of how do you make it easy for a guy in the field to know what to take? So building on that thing we just talked about, you know, this notion of yeah, a traffic light type system. What can I take now? What can I take you know, when I yeah, in the firefight or you know, you know, when I've got a moment? What do I take when I've got a bit longer? And then what do I take when I'm you know, back at you know, back at base or I've got some time to to brew up? So big big focus on that. Weight is a really big factor in there. So looking at how do we lean out the packaging. Uh, you know, there's a bit of a crossover there because obviously sustainability is a big factor. Sustainable packaging in austere environments is still pretty much impossible. There, there isn't a uh, uh, compostable food packaging product that uh, will survive um, uh, a week on Otterburn. Some other things that come out of that, nootropics. So uh, if you don't know, nootropic is uh, something that helps with cognitive performance. And again, building on some of that research we did around uh, fatigue and sleep loss, we've done some work on a product that's specifically designed to help with things like memory, mental processing speed, verbal fluency in the face of sleep loss and fatigue. What that work has given us is an opportunity to just almost go, the art, you know, what's the art of the possible? And the thing I'd probably highlight is the fact that that is proper it's almost proper agile iterative thinking yeah very fast to could we try this let's make a prototype let's use it test it and then yeah see what comes out of it and if it works let's evolve it more if it doesn't work drop it uh, and that's really good 
representation of I think the way that the military is increasingly working is yeah it's about speed which is unusual for the army because normally they take a lot of time and especially in development and trials don't they they're notoriously slow oh yeah yeah and uh yeah cost billions what sort of things that you're looking at then environments and what's in the, the sort of the packs what, what are you developing along that lines so you won't be surprised the main meal isn't really changing but probably bigger focus on on dehydrated freeze-dried is probably the most uh, effective way of uh keeping the nutrients in in food products as i say format so think meal replacement shakes that the u.s have been doing this for some time there's a company called ample meals uh have, have made a, a meal replacement shake for some time to so say more componentized bars and kind of like snack type products so rather than getting a yorkie bar that tastes like a candle you you, you, you start and actually get stuff that tastes uh tastes good but also has some functional benefits and then some there's some novel, novel stuff coming through i mentioned nitrates and and some of the benefits of, of nitrates sleep aids specifically looking at yeah how can we help people accelerate the onset of sleep personalized supplementation nootropics we've mentioned another interesting one is is around adaptogens yeah is as we all know that the battlefield is a, is a very stressful place and so there's been an increased focus on how do we reduce the impact of that stress. So, so those are, but you know, fundamentally we'll still see meal meals. We'll still see bars of chocolate. They'd just be slightly smarter. It's interesting. Some of the stuff you've there, like the, sh- the shakes, because if everybody knows if, if you've, if you've tabbed any distance for long Bergen or you've done some hard physical exercise and actually can act as an appetite suppressant, same as the way if you're in an extreme environment, like the Arctic or the, the jungle or the desert, you know, extreme heat can suppress your appetite. And you don't mm. really feel like eating. No. So I can imagine some of this stuff will encourage. So, you know, a lot of time I've been in these environments, you've had to force yourself to eat to get the calories down. Yeah. As a, and one of the reasons for that is you don't tend to hydrate as well. So no, yeah, if, yeah. If a lot of people on endurance events, if you get them to drink first and, and sort the hydration problem, the appetite comes back. But interestingly, appetite suppression is a design element when you in ration systems, because if you can get enough nutrition in, but take away the hunger, yeah, hunger hunger's a powerful force mentally. And yeah, if you can suppress that, whilst making sure people still eat sufficiently, uh, that it's a useful trick. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So uh, just one one more question on this. Uh, for enduring operations, how long did you have these sort of rations with no fresh, no cookouts? Is there, is, there a, is there a limit to how much before it has a detrimental effect because you're just piling? Well, okay, the longest we've had someone on one of our systems is 118 days. Guy okay. Dave Bell. Uh, rode the Atlantic the wrong way from New York to Falmouth, um, <laughs> as you do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Dave, otherwise known as Dinger, was on a combination of rat packs and um, some other bits that we put in the mix. No negative detrimental effects. Yeah, I, th- I think the, we're now at the point where we we know what the body needs in terms of fiber. Yeah. And, you know, if you can go for whatever it is, almost half a year, um yeah quarter of a year third of a year yeah on on a system that's fundamentally not fresh and have no negative effects in terms yeah. yeah yeah no problems in terms of gut yeah didn't have any didn't didn't ever feel sick 
Uh, you know, there was a reasonable amount of variety in it. Yeah, you, you can spin these things out to have a rotating menu of yeah, 10, yeah. 14 days. So the edge of thinking at the moment now is is looking to space. And if you mm. look at some of the work that's still very much in the research space, they're looking at three, 400 days. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's, there's some interesting work um, going on at the moment that's simulating space travel, interplanetary space travel. And there's a project going on now that's looking, I think they're doing a 284-day trial. Yeah, it's possible to you know it, we we can go a long way because I know I just know eating compo for um, long term there's always an impact on that. Well, as usual, we'll finish off with Desert Island Dits, which is the guest choice of book, film, and luxury item. So, Ali, what have you picked for this this episode? As a reservist, am I allowed two choices? No, we're going to be strict, Ali. You've got to pick one. Okie dokie. You're going to tra- let, let your rations. We're traveling late to this desert island. Right, so I'm going to stick with my military choices then. My book of choice is uh, Team of Teams by Stan McChrystal. So uh, Stan, uh, Stanley McChrystal, General Stanley McChrystal, uh, commanded Joint Special Operations Task Force in Iraq in 2003, and he quickly realised that conventional military tactics were failing. Um, the hierarchical, engineered, rigid, allied military just couldn't compete with this organic, dynamic enemy that was... Uh, uh, Al Qaeda. Subsequent to that, he he, he wrote the book. Really, um, he wrote the book after he left, um, and he wrote it with a couple of his colleagues from from that organisation. But what it turned out to be was something that reflected what was going on in business at the time. And I think what was interesting was what he recognised was that the military needed to become more agile, needs to become more adaptable, and needs to become more resilient. And it was almost, the way I interpreted it was, it was almost like taking the military has been and still is to, to a large extent engineered. Yeah, it, it's blocks and you push the blocks together. And if, if you try and put a block with a, with a, with a circle, it doesn't work. You know, and that's where you get friction. And what he recognized was that the enemy was this organic thing that could morph. It was like a, an octopus. It could you know, respond really quickly. I remember um, reading this book, and there's a bit in it he talks about interconnected and connected organisations and the difference between the two, and it's absolutely fascinating how, you know, the, I think if I, if I recall lately, the Army's a connected organisation, but the AQ was interconnected, and it was far more flexible uh, and was able to adapt far quicker than the Army that were chasing it. Yeah, and the thing, the thing I recognised the most was this notion of shared consciousness. Yeah, I think he, he – I can't remember the phrase he used, but it was um, – something about the freedom of information by allowing information to flow and to give trust to subordinates mm. with stuff that changed the game. You know, let, you know, if, you, if you inform well-trained, capable individuals and teams and let them get on with it, they'll do a really good job. And I think what, what's interesting is it, it kind of reflects where big tech has been um, and it's nice to see some of that stuff coming through now, ironically, uh, almost 20 years later. Yeah, I remember, going back to Silicon Valley, I'll just say this quickly because we want, we want to move on to your film choice. But I remember saying, you know, all this all this stuff we've got from working from home now, but if you go to Google's headquarters in, uh, over in the States, they design their offices and that, it's all open plan, but they also design it so there's flows through the building where people can meet and there's whiteboards on the walls and electronic devices. They can share ideas, and uh, it's that sort of 
connectivity that you're talking about there, Ali. So sorry, I stole your glory there, but I'll move on now because we, we need to get to, to, towards the end. So what's your film choice? Got to go for the Born Identity. Uh, you know, any any movie that involves a, you know, a soldier saved from death by science and then turned by a secret project into a super soldier, you know, just it's right up, it's right up our street, you know. Fits into our conversation quite well there, didn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, and you know, there's that brilliant scene where he, uh, you know, turns up at the at the the mountain hut and he doesn't have his chems. He doesn't know what's in his chems. Yeah, it's kind of like yeah, they, not not that we want people to be dependent, but I just I just you know that 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 whole story is 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 quite cool. You know, what's your luxury item? It's got to be a hen. Sustainable. Well, yeah, they are the ultimate dinosaur. You know, they've been around for millennia. They they just they'll they live on scraps. They keep producing eggs. You know, and you know, if they do croak it, you end up with a decent um, sort of uh, you know, chicken. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's a good choice. I like, yeah. I, like, I like that choice. It could be vicious buggers as well. Uh, <laughs> Kev, what's your choice? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a luxury item as well this week. Uh, the luxury item, because we've been talking about rations, is I always used to carry some garlic, salt, and paprika. Or even paprika, not paprika. Yeah, paprika. Yeah. <laughs> but choice this week and books-wise, and, and it, it's quite good because it's, it's going back to the Cold War a little bit as well. It's a true story called Tunnel 29. Uh, it's written by uh, Helena Merriman. And the good thing about this, it's also a podcast now on the BBC, so you can actually listen to it as well. It's set around the 60s, the early 60s, in, on Western Berlin, where the students dug a tunnel into eastern Berlin to get their friends and family members to escape from the tyranny of um, the Stasi and and the you know the Russian the Russian the USSR. And what it's a remarkable Cold War story. It's it's the boys' own stuff, the tunnel. They had to build other tunnels. Tunnels got flooded. They got captured, or some of them got captured. Some got interrogated. Um, they also had a spy on the western side who was feeding to the Stasi what was going on. And alongside of all this, they got NBC News Channel, American News Channel, to fund it, and they filmed it. So if you go on YouTube and type in Tunnel 29, there's a 90-minute black-and-white documentary about this happening. So they filmed it in real life, uh, but only with certain members of the tunnel gang because they couldn't trust everyone. But they, but NBC funded it. Apparently, Kennedy's administration tried to block this documentary before it got released because it was at the height of the Cold War and some of the tensions and what they didn't want to show was what was going on. And I suspect that's because there was many other tunnels going from east to west. Uh, actually down in the tunnel filming it at yeah, the time. Yeah, if you go on but YouTube. Probably huge cameras and everything. Well, I don't think it was huge. You know, even they had small ones in the 60s. But, uh, <laughs> probably not as small as today. It wasn't on your, your camera phone. If you go on YouTube, you can watch the documentary as well. It's the fact that NBC funded it because they had no digging kit, they had no generators, no lighting, so they had to to find funding. These were just students, and so NBC paid for it. Over Christmas, I watched uh, 14 Peaks, Peaks with Nims Purger. Really remarkable film, uh, what this guy did. Uh, and then I've been listening to his book on when I'm out running on Beyond Possible. It's called Beyond Possible. And for those that don't know, can't be very many, Nims Purger covered, uh, summited 14 of the world's 8,000-meter peaks in six months. It resonates with me because about 
10 years ago, me and Kev and a few others went trekking to Everest Base Camp. And when I landed at Lukler Airport till I got back to Kathmandu, I was hanging out my arse. <laughs> I had altitude sickness. I could hardly eat. And I had to sit and watch Kev every morning tucking into a big breakfast and drinking beer at night. So I just couldn't do it. The book itself gives a lot more detail on Nims and uh, about his poor upbringing his family, his other brothers were Gurkhas. He sent him to boarding school. But he's a man of outstanding determination. You know, he's determined to do well at school when he was out running for the school. He failed his first attempt at Gurkha selection, so he went back again. Uh, he got into the UK Special Forces. He was the first Gurkha to serve in the Special Boat Service. Absolutely huge determination. And he, he, he did this feat after only seven years climbing. Uh, and he'd been an interesting subject for a, a medical examination. I know he's a Nepali, but he must have an exceptional mountain physiology. And going back to what you were saying earlier on, Ali, when he's climbing the mountains, he eats very little. You know, he says in this book, you, he takes water, and, and that's about it. You know, he doesn't really have anything else. But for I understand you've spoken to him a couple of times. Yeah, so I mean, so one of our athletes, Adri Brownlee, is um, is is part of Nims's team, and yeah, I, um, we know Nims. Um, what's interesting, he he grew up in um, the he didn't grow up in the hills in Nepal, so he, he's from from the lower parts of, of. Yeah, I think he grew up in the mountains, but then he moved down to sort of the more but the lower place where the jungle is. And uh, yeah, but you, you touched on it. He has got a phenomenal physiology. Um, and they've done some tests. He's done some work at the London Altitude Centre. Yeah, his, his oxygen uptake is is phenomenal. Um, yeah, they're, they're, so you look at performance. Uh, there's, a, there's a great um, podcast called uh, Performance Out um, Human Performance Outliers. Um, I think it is. And yeah, he's one of those examples. It, yeah, physiologically, he is different. Yeah, as, as as you can see, I mean, you, you look at some of the videos. There's a great video of him and seven Nepali Sherpas summiting K2. They were they were the first um, all Gurkha sorry all Sherpa team to to summit K two and they're the first team to summit in winter and K two is known as the Savage Mountain um, and I there were quite a few fatalities. this season wasn't the worst but yeah the the thing that goes hand in hand with mountaineering is is fatalities yeah K two kills forty percent of people that attempt to claim it it was on that in his book all right Ali thanks for that so what's the best Way for people to get in touch, Ali, whether it's via social media or your website. Yeah, uh, always keen to have a chat. Um, if, if there's anyone out there doing something interesting and, and just wants to chat about nutrition, uh, you can get us at, at Resilient Nuts on social um, or resilientnutrition.com. Um, and if there's anyone out there planning to do a course, feel free to get in touch um, and we'll give you a hand. Well, that's it for another episode. So thank you, Ali, for coming on the podcast and to you, the listener for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming, and our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. And as always, I don't mind a letter, postcard, anything with a stamp on. You can I'll, put Ali's li- I'll put Ali's links at the bottom as well, but no postcode, mate, because he's moved on. He's a 21st century too. <laughs> you can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, post boxes. And if you enjoyed the post the podcast, it'd be great for you to, if you could leave us a review on the platform you download it from, especially on Satis, uh, Spotify or iTunes, as most of our downloads come from there. And thank you again to Nick Beal for his continuing support and sponsorship to the series and offering technical support through his company, ISAR. See you again next time on The Unconventional Soldier. <music>
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.